take a look at the book of First Peter. You know, by the grace of God, we're actually coming down home stretch in the book of First Peter. And, uh, you know, a lot has been said regarding the background. You know, Rome was in charge. Um, the suffering that these saints were experiencing is probably what prompted Peter to write. As these saints were experiencing something they had never experienced before, and that was the persecution of the Roman Empire, even, even from the Jews themselves, Christians were under great oppression and duress. And so in order to cope with that, Peter finds these words of comfort and reality uh, inspired by the Spirit of God to help these early believers who had been scattered there in Asia Minor. So with that, I'd like to read the section this morning that I've been assigned to. It's 1 Peter 5, 1 through 7. And I'll start with verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading clown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. So with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words penned some 2,000 years ago, Lord, written to those who needed to hear from you regarding their persecution, regarding their walk with you, and regarding your own mind and will and purpose for the church and for all believers. And so, Lord, this morning we pray that in your wisdom and in your grace and mercy you would find it in your heart to teach and help us to understand these in a greater way that our lives might be changed into that image that you so um, are pleased with, that is the image of your son, Jesus. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. So what I would, thought I would do on this particular study is, I don't do this often, but I took the time to write, since there were only seven verses, I wrote a paraphrase. And so I took a little bit of poetic license and some literary latitude, you might say, um, I tried to write it, Kim, in first person, but um, I might have slipped up a time or two, so it might shift from first to third person. I hope that doesn't confuse you. But so here's Dave's paraphrase on 1 Peter 5, 1 through 7. Peter begins by addressing the older members of the body of Christ by appealing to them as one equal to another, or as he put it, one elder to another. He reminds them that he personally witnessed the severe suffering that Jesus experienced for the benefit and salvation of others. And then he shared his personal faith and confidence in the reality that he would be present with Christ when he is revealed in glory for all the world to see. And of course, this hope and destiny is shared by all believers. 
Peter then asks the older saints, specifically the elders, to be diligent to care for the people of God by faithfully proclaiming the word of God. He reminds them to serve willingly as overseers, and not just to serve because they feel forced to do so, or because they're paid to do so, but because their heart's desire is simply to do the work of God. He asked them not to serve with an attitude of authority, but in their service to always bear in mind that each and every believer belongs to God, not the leadership. He instructs them that their most effective means of serving will simply be as examples to others. In the modern vernacular, he is saying, actions speak louder than words. Building on the thought that the church belongs to Jesus, Peter then declares that Jesus is the chief shepherd and that he's coming again. Peter notes that those who have undertaken the role of leadership sincerely and biblically and have been examples to the flock will be rewarded with what he called a crown of glory. But they'll have to wait because this reward won't be received until they get to heaven. Peter indicated, though, that it would be worth a wait because this crown will never tarnish, corrode, or deteriorate. It's a heavenly crown. Peter then shifts his attention to the younger believers. He tells them to willingly submit to the leadership of older and more mature believers. And then, appealing to the entire body, he indicates that all should display a spirit of submission one to another. He suggests that individual members in the body of Christ are not to promote themselves as better than another. He then tells them to take a path of modest humility as they fellowship and interact with each other. He then answers the question, why take such a position? It's a simple principle found in Proverbs 3.34. God opposes those who are proud and haughty, but gives grace to those who are humble. Peter knew firsthand that when he humbled himself, the Lord used that to mold his character into that of the image of Christ. Finally, Peter tells them that humility is a wise choice compared to self-exaltation. Peter promotes the idea that all believers should recognize their position of lowliness before the Almighty God of this universe. In the Lord's prophetic plan, the time will come when true believers will be lifted up to a position of honor and glory, reigning with Christ. But until that time, all believers should walk in humility. It's possible that when Peter was writing these words, he reflected back on a time when Jesus sat down and called the twelve of them together, and he said to them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last and servant of all. Peter closes this portion of scripture by telling all of them to keep their focus on the one who cares for them. Jesus is not distracted by the myriad of events occurring on earth when it comes to his plan and his purpose for each and every believer. Peter's encouragement is like that prophet of old who said, walk humbly with your God. He encourages his readers to live with the assurance 
that their lives are in the loving hands and care of Jesus Christ. So again, a little paraphrase just to kind of help get the flow of this incredible passage. Um, and by this, um, um, by this method, it kind of helped me to understand a little bit of how this thing is flowing. And so now what I'd like to do is just share a few thoughts on some of these verses. And I actually have a key verse in the bulletin, it's verse 4, and so I have a key thought, a key verse, a key thought, and, and hopefully that will be uh, the key that unlocks us and lets us go home. After, not home in heaven, but uh, home after the service, unless the Lord should have a rapture. Okay, verse 1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sort of gain, but with eagerness. So here we see, I mean, many commentators, J. Vernon McGee is just the one that sticks out in my mind the most, but they reference three specific functions that Peter gives attention to. To lead, feed, and protect. You know, this idea of protection, the other night we went to a baseball game and uh, my oldest daughter, who's been married for several years and she has one, one grandchild, or she has one child, I have one grandchild, and she's under the protection of her husband, but Jane and I were dropping her off at her car. And even though she's under the protection of her husband, as her dad, I watched her every step to that car, it was in the dark parking lot, I wanted to make sure she got in the car, the lights were on, that sense of fatherly protection. And so here you see this aspect of wanting to lead, but also to protect. It's uh, something that's cherished within our families, but here cherished within the body of Christ for, for those who are leading. The interesting thing about this passage is, although it's specifically written to elders, it applies to all of us. Like you could pick up the book of First or Second Kings and say, well, this was written about kings, so... So I have no need to pay attention. You know, it's just not written to me. Or you could pick up this section of scripture and say, well, I'm not an elder. So on the other hand, in a sense, we're all elders in terms of responsibility. We're all responsible for something, somewhere along the line. <coughs> now, elders in the church have a very specific calling. And, uh, and so there's been a lot of studies on the various words in the Greek translation of how these words are used. For the most part... When it comes to leadership within the church, a lot of those words used are interchangeable. So when he's talking about a pastor or an elder or an overseer, they're pretty much interchangeable and they have to do with those who have desired to take up the work of leading the church of God. Now, with that, in terms of responsibility, um, three things. Three things that we can do, not only as elders and leaders, but also just as saints is that we can recognize that each of us has a very specific responsibility when it comes to our faith. Yes, by believing in Jesus Christ, we are given responsibilities. Not only are we given responsibilities, but, but graciously God has given us his word and his spirit and fellowship in order to help us. He hasn't given us responsibilities without the fuel and the support to carry out those responsibilities. He doesn't want this to be a work that we do on his own, but a work that he does in and through us. 
So with that, we have three options. Number one, we can preach Christ and Him crucified. We can preach Jesus as the only way. And we can teach others about Jesus Christ biblically. For example, Paul said this, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That's what Peter's getting up here. Serving, teaching, but to serve the interests of Christ. So, we have the great privilege of that responsibility. Secondly, we could do this in terms of our responsibility. Just keep silent. Just bite the tongue. Let people believe what they want to believe and say, well, what's good for you is good for you, what's good for me is good for me, and, um, and so be it. Uh, thirdly, and probably most dangerously, is we can promote our own ideology, our own ideas. You know, Paul said to me regarding this idea of keeping silent, woe to me if I preach not the gospel. Paul would have been very discouraged if he didn't say things that glorified God and taught others. And, and then on this idea of, of, of alien ideologies that can be easily taught because our minds are very deceitful. In the book of Jeremiah, you know, our hearts and our inner person can be deceived into thinking we have a corner on the truth. Um, Paul said this, For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from truth, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. So here we have these three responsibilities. Now the interesting thing is, on these responsibilities, is that when we preach Christ from true motives, for the sake and interest of Jesus Christ, what will be the response of many in the world itself? Well, we'll be considered intolerable. We'll be considered unloving when we say things like, Jesus is the only way, and all other paths are cul-de-sacs and dead ends, and, and we'll have to bear the brunt of that criticism and that ridicule for being intolerant and unloving. Now, on the other two sides of the coin, if we keep silence when we should speak, or we promote our own ideas at the expense of the Word of God, then we won't have to answer to the world because, see, the world will embrace that. Then we'll have to answer at the judgment seat of Christ. And so, to me, as I pondered these things, it, it, it caused a great conviction in my own heart to be very careful to teach the Word of God in such a way that Christ is glorified and that we are attempting to do and to teach what God desires and not what our flesh wants to see. And in times when we want to be silent, maybe those are times that we should pray and seek the Lord to say the truth and to speak that truth in love, as Paul would say. Now, Peter is saying, so we to these elders there to shepherd the flock of God because they're responsible. There's a responsibility attached with being an elder. There's a responsibility that all of us have in terms of being believers. Um, notice he says, though, that monetary issues should not be taken into consideration when it comes to serving. I've been on both sides of the coin. I've actually got a paycheck from a church that I served in as an associate pastor, and I've been in service with others without a paycheck. I happened to remember one day I was uh, driving to 
this prison in Shelton. And as I was driving to that prison ministry, I thought to myself, man, this is, this, I like this ministry because uh, mileage was reimbursable back then. So it was 95 miles round trips. So I thought, man, this is a more profitable ministry than going to the home fellowship because it was only three miles away. And so I kept track of my mileage. But then I thought, you know, how, how the flesh looks for profit, you know. Uh, J. Vernon McGee wrote a little pamphlet about, uh, about the Old Testament figure named Balaam. You remember Balaam's mentioned in the New Testament too? But he called that little article a prophet for profit. So, so here um, we're encouraged not to allow monetary issues to be a factor in our service to Christ. You know, as you read through this passage, you think, man, if I do what Peter says, I'm going to end up penniless, and I'm going to humble myself and be a doormat for people to walk over. But yet, how God's ways are so different than our ways. Verse 3, Nor lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Jesus, of course, was the perfect example. He was God incarnate, and when he came to earth that first time, he didn't demand worship. He didn't act authoritatively when it came to wanting to control people by intimidation and anger. He simply spoke the truth in love and lived in such a way that he spoke the truth, but yet with great humility. Um, Jesus did it in such a way, I think one translation says that he did it without, without recognition, you know, without a seeking a reputation, I think one translation says. So, we so often get hung up on recognition. You know, we know, as believers, we are called to serve. I mean, the Bible tells that. Each one of us are called to serve our Lord and Master. And what happens is, we embrace our calling, because we know it's biblical, but then as we begin to serve, um, we find ourselves not getting the accolades and the recognition that we think we deserve, and so we begin to think, well, what's the use? I'm just serving in such a way. And, and ultimately what happens is our, we can condition our service on the acknowledgement of others. You know, we want kind of those kudos and those kickbacks. And so sometimes we can limit our degree of service to the Lord by the amount of respect and, and, and uh, recognition that we receive from others. And so the idea of just quietly serving the Word of God and quietly serving Jesus Christ, even to the point of death, is somewhat very foreign to our minds. And it takes the Lord to help us to understand that our service is unto him. Oftentimes I think of Jeremiah, who lived in a society that was totally against him and what he was proclaiming. And yet he faithfully proclaimed the word of God day after day, and ultimately ended up paying the sacrifice of being taken out of Jerusalem to Egypt and then perishing. We don't know how he died. The scripture doesn't tell us. So, verse 3 also says that not only are we to be examples, but it also says, not lording it over those allotted to your charge. Uh, one of my commentators that I learned to have appreciated over the years made this statement regarding the history of the popes. He said this, quote, the history of the popes is mostly one of arrogance, lust, greed, and imperial power. Proud emperors and kings 
had trembled at the assumed power of the Pope to put nations under their rule. Throughout the Dark Ages, the popes ruled virtually unchallenged. They made alliances, signed treaties, mobilized armies, waged war, and persecuted bitterly and unmercifully those who questioned and challenged their authority. And of course, the popes traced their heritage back to Peter. But for some odd reason, I don't see the connection in what Peter is seeing here in the history of how the popes unfolded. In fact, at one point, there were two popes, both excommunicating each other, and yet this incredible sense of authority, Peter says, avoid that. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. One commentator said, you know, it's interesting here, when the chief shepherd appears, here um, he said this, Jesus is no longer a babe in the manger, and he's no longer on the cross. He is poised and ready to implement God's final administration in the summing up of the church, in the summing up of Israel, and in the summing up of Gentile powers. And then he says that when the chief shepherd, you know, all other elders being underlings, when the chief shepherd appears, you, that is the leadership, will receive this unfading crown of glory. The term crown in the Greek is Stephanus. It refers to a garland that is fabricated from olive branches, parsley, oak, or ivy. Hopefully not poison ivy. But this garland was presented to a victorious athlete. And obviously this, this crown didn't last long since it was perishable. So it withered and... and um, but here, Peter says, it's an unfading crown of glory. I'm not sure what that is going to look like in eternity, but Paul put it this way. We strive or we, um, we um, employ ourselves to receive a crown that is imperishable. You know, and yet other athletes, they discipline themselves, they buffet their bodies for a wreath that will just someday perish away. Um, and then he says, shifting his attention, you younger men likewise be subject to the elders, all of you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility to one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's interesting, you know, when you think about the modern church today, and this idea of younger men submitting to older men, and younger believers to older believers, that what has happened in our fellowship and in and, and many, many fellowships is what you have in the youth ministry is kind of a church within a church. And so I'm not sure that's exactly what Peter had in mind when you read these words. I, I think that you can see that the idea that we work together with you know, helping the younger generation and the generation in willing submission and for the glory of Christ. But um, anyways, I, I throw that out because... Um, there again, I've been on both sides of that coin, too. I was a youth pastor for many years, and, and I found it to be a little bit autonomous. You know, it was like my little kingdom. I was able to say what I want, and, you know, and do what I want, and, and direct. Um, yet, I think when you look at this passage, since he's speaking first to elders, and then the younger generation, and then all of you, there seems to be more of a, 
of a cohesiveness there in the body of Christ of all of us working together for Christ's glory. Um, whether we're young in the faith or old in the faith, God has given us specific uh, talents to use for his ministry. But again, for the edification of others. And then finally, he closes and says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. In the world of Paul's day, it was filled with Greek culture and Roman religion. In the, in the, in the psychic of Roman citizens and, and Hellenized people, the idea of, of a god like Zeus or Poseidon or some other Greek or Roman god, Jupiter, um, there was a certain fear and trembling associated with that mythological god. And so you, as an individual citizen, you know, you realize that, man, these gods, they do what they want. I'm at, I'm at a place where if they wanted to snuff me out, they can. And so the idea of a, of a ruling sovereign who cares for the individual person was foreign to their thought. And so here, Peter says, that casting your anxiety in because he cares for you. Probably one of the most profound aspects of, of the Lord himself, that the Lord is in heaven and he cares for each one of us here today. He has a deep and abiding concern for you. He loves you. And so should we walk around in fear and trembling? No. On the other hand, as Don suggested this morning in our communion time, there should be a certain holy reverence and fear that we have toward our Heavenly Father. But remember what Scripture says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we have the great privilege of realizing that there is a Heavenly Father that we serve who cares for every one of us. And the interesting thing is, as He cares for us here, He cares for every individual believer across the globe. And as I mentioned in my little paraphrase here, you know, Jesus is not distracted with the Israeli-Arab conflict or the Western issue between U.S. and Iran. Um, when it comes to his care for you, God is much more concerned about you, the individual believer, in serving his purposes. Because see, these Gentile powers and these leaders that God has raised up are just running their course. They're fitting into God's plan and prophetic timetable, just as scripture says. Proverbs tells us that the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it where he wills. The world system is just running its course, but God's concern in his eye is upon the individual believer, the body of Christ, as he's using us in these last days to bring to this dark and dying world the message of truth in Jesus Christ. Now, couple things here is not only was this kind of a foreign thought in the culture in which um, Peter lived, um, but also, notice this, it says, casting your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You know, in many ways, this is a great failure in my own life. You know, we, as the body of Christ, are a reflection of Jesus. So, when we're running around all anxious and concerned and upset you know, what kind of message is that sending, not only to the body of Christ, 
but to those around us. On the other hand, if we're casting our care upon him, we're resting in him, people notice that. And, you know, so often I've been, um, Jane can tell you, so often I've been concerned about this or perplexed about that. Um, and, and again, it's probably not the most um, um, desirable um, testimony to be running around like, with your, like a chicken with your head cut off, anxious and concerned. And so here, Peter is just encouraging all of the body of Christ to cast your care upon him. He cares for you. And your testimony of faith and trust and that quiet confidence is a reflection of how, you know, Jesus is not concerned about things because everything is under his sovereign control. In fact, Psalm, two, Psalm chapter 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the kings of this world devise their plans? You know, the Holy Spirit is saying, Why is everybody so engaged in things that that uh, are have to do with um, have to do with in a sense dethroning Jesus. So now what I'd like to do is just a quick thought here in closing regarding the key verse, verse four, that when the chief shepherd appears, this is a theme that runs through the entire New Testament. It's kind of one of those things that should affect our very psychic as believers, if I can use that word. Um, in terms of of appreciating our future hope, the return of Jesus Christ, you know, it's something that should encourage us, should comfort us, but also should challenge us in our responsibilities before Him. So Peter is saying, look, the Chief Shepherd is going to come again. He is going to appear. Now we know from a biblical perspective. There are a lot of things that are going to occur at the rapture and the second coming of Christ. There's a whole bunch of events. There's a marriage feast of the Lamb. There's um, you know things that we don't have time to get into today. There's the judgment seat of Christ. There is the um, sheep goat judgment of Matthew 25. And so there's a lot of events ultimately culminating after a thousand year reign in the great white throne judgment. So a lot of events associated with the return of Christ. Um, but here Peter is directly referring possibly to the rapture. So as we serve the Lord in our leadership roles, uh, specifically the elders here, that there awaits the elders, these leaders, a crown of glory uh, when the chief shepherd appears. So it could be a rapture. Now, Peter had already voiced his, his confidence in the fact that he would be with Christ when he returned. We know that's a separate event. So, um, all that to say, I'd like to read to you a portion of Daniel chapter 2 and look at kind of uh, some, of the, um, some of the, I suppose you could say, theological ideas. There is a direct interpretation of this vision that was given to Nebuchadnezzar, but there was also an indirect or a theological application that I think we can draw. So if you want to turn to Daniel chapter 2, I'd like to begin reading with verse 31. So Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. Nebuchadnezzar had um, defeated the Assyrians, he had defeated the Egyptians, he had stopped by Jerusalem, and had taken the king of Jerusalem and changed his alliance from Egypt 
to um, Babylon, and he was pretty much the ruling general of the world at the time, and he gets news that his father has passed away. And so now, not only is he top dog in terms of being a general, he is now the king of Babylon. And so what he does is he returns to Babylon in order to celebrate a great parade and all of his military accomplishments. So he decides to stop by Jerusalem and pick up a few spoils of war. And among those spoils were issued, or uh, were things from the temple, you know, golden things he took from the temple, along with the king of Judah, along with Daniel and his friends. So he brings them back and he parades them in the streets of Babylon to show what a powerful king he had become. And then, after that, um, that episode, he, he has a dream, and a very troubling dream, and you know the story. He tasks his, um, his staff to tell him the dream and the interpretation. And they said, well, no problem, tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. He goes, oh no, you tell me the dream and the interpretation. And of course this caused great consternation among these Chaldean leaders, and along with Daniel and his friends because they were part of that group. Well, Daniel seeks the Lord, and God, in his wisdom, gives Daniel the interpretation. So I'd like to read to you Daniel's response to the king and his interpretation, verse 31 of Daniel chapter 2. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly iron and partly clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all crushed at the same time and became chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you its interpretation. You, O king, are king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom and the power and the strength and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over all of them. You are the head of gold. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet of toes, partly of potter's clay, and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly pottery, so the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw iron mixed with common clay, 
They will combine with one another in the state of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In those, in the days of those kings, God will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, and the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So just a couple of comments here in, in closing is, number one, when we think about this idea of the chief shepherd appearing, we know that coupled with the appearing of Jesus Christ is the demise of Gentile powers. Now, the Bible uses a term called the times of the Gentiles. Most agree that the times of the Gentiles began with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and goes all the way down until the return of Jesus Christ. There's another term, not to confuse you, called the fullness of the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles, I believe, refers to the church. The last believer commits himself to the Lord, and the Lord decides to rapture the church. Paul referred to that as the fullness of the Gentiles, related to the church, Jew and Gentile, the times of the Gentiles, though, refers to the nation of Israel and their oppression under Gentile powers. Um, now, in terms of the direct interpretation, we know that Babylon, Persia, and Greece were all mentioned specifically by name. They were explicit um, interpretations fulfilling the gold, the silver, and the bronze. Rome was by implication. Um, you know, the, the difference between implied or, you know, explicit, I actually learned in math class, in, in uh, uh, calculus, because we had to do implicit differentiation and explicit differentiation. And so I had to look it up in the dictionary to, to see the difference between the two terms. So, so here we have the explicit interpretation of four world powers that basically the Jews suffered under. I mean, the Jews suffered under Egypt, they suffered under a lot of different empires, including the Nazis, as of recent. But here, the Jews suffered under Babylon, Persia, and Greece. Of course, the Babylonians destroyed their city, took them captive. Um, you know, Persia also had its, its hand in the... Um, um, if you read the book of Nehemiah, you'll discover that they... Um, they suffered while they were trying to rebuild their temple and so on and so forth. And then in the Grecian Empire, there was a fellow by the name of Antiochus, Epiphanes IV. And he, um, he tried to completely extinguish Judaism and completely Hellenize the Jews so they would have no recognizable past. Um, so, notice this though, that in this vision, so when we think about the chief shepherd appearing, um, the first thing is, it's one statue. There are four kingdoms in this one statue, but the unity of the statue speaks of the world itself. It's, it's a worldly kingdom. The god of this world is at the helm. And, but notice the progression here in terms of the interpretation. It's from superior to inferior. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. 
Um, I want to touch on that a little bit later, but let me read to you some other thoughts I had regarding the progression of this, of this image. Uh, secondly, it progresses from the head to the feet, from great wealth to less, you know, kind of a Kmart blue light special, less expensive. It goes from malleable and ductile material like gold to brittleness. It goes from unity, the head being uh, a single unity, to diversification. When you look at Babylon, it was ruled by Nebuchadnezzar II, and it was a powerful empire. It only lasted 87 years, but it was a pure monarchy. By the time you get to Persia, you'll see a little bit more of cooperation among leaders, more diversification. By the time you get to Greece, you're looking at Athenian democracy, versus the oligarchy of Sparta, and so they're experimenting with these various forms of government. By the time you get to Rome, of course you have the Republic and the imperial form of Rome, which is completely diversified, and so you have this degradation from singularity to diversity. You also have um, a progression from metallic to mineral. So we have the head of gold, the most... um, when I worked in the shipyard, we oftentimes had to select materials. And we used a tool called the galvanic series. It was a way of making sure that you didn't put two metals together that would create a corrosion and a battery. There was another one called the, the uh, locomotive series that we used to determine you know, noble metals and not so noble metals. And so here we see this figure, this this uh, description of Gentile powers going from metallic to mineral. Clay, and ultimately a stone comes in and demolishes everything. And finally, we see it it goes from man-made to God-made. So my thought, and I could be wrong, but when Daniel was given the wisdom to interpret the vision, that what Daniel saw was this gold shaped in the form of a head by a man's hand, by a craftsman. Same with the uh, silver and bronze, and ultimately the iron, and then the ten toes. Um, But the interesting thing is, so what we have here is we have one kingdom with four parts, four sub-kingdoms, if you will, and the fifth kingdom, this stone cut without hands. Now, when we think about Jesus being the head of the church, you know, we would look at a a vision like that and we would think that actually humankind was progressing. I mean, if we started out with tyranny and a monarch and then transitioned to uh, Athenian democracy and the assembly and, you know, when uh, when Plato or when Socrates appeared, um, he actually was rejecting Athenian democracy and it cost him his life. And then his disciple, Plato, same thing. He was being accused of, of being oligarchic and catering to Sparta. And then by the time you get to Aristotle, Aristotle, his, his disciple, Aristotle actually was the one that tutored Alexander the Great for three years. Now Aristotle, he said this, he said, the purest form of government is a monarchy. Now you and I, as Americans, we have a hard time with that because we like You know, when it comes to politics, I like gridlock. I like the legislator and the executive branches to be all tied up in gridlock because that way they won't affect our lives too bad, you know? It's when they begin making policies that affect our lives that you find great consternation. But 
we have this system of balance, so to speak. So why is it, do you think, that in this vision that Daniel was interpreting for the king, it started off with this head of gold? I would say this, again, this is speculative, but it's kind of a type of Christ. You see, the purest form of ruling would be a monarchy, but Aristotle went on to say the problem with a pure monarchy is you have humans fulfilling that role. And there's an inherent trap in a person becoming all-powerful because they tend to become uh, a tyrant. So, but when we see this kingdom of Jesus Christ, the millennial kingdom, it is Jesus ruling from Jerusalem, a perfect monarch, a... um, some people, um, I personally think that in the millennial kingdom, there will be conflict, but it won't be tolerated. There will be sin, but it won't be tolerated. Jesus, it says of him, ruling in this thousand-year reign, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, but he will be a perfect monarch. You and I will have the privilege of reigning with him when he appears. So, I do know this, um, that... When you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, he said this. He said, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul was speaking of a past that had satisfied his life. In other words, Paul arrived at that point in his life where he was trained by Gamaliel, he was steeped in Judaism, he had a heritage to protect, he thought he was serving the God of the Bible, and life was good in a sense. Paul had reached the pinnacle of his career, but then he goes on to say, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. And so, one of the interesting things is that, that you and I, as believers, have the privilege of getting to know Jesus Christ here, this side of heaven, as we look forward to these events that not only Peter is referring to and Daniel is referring to, but Paul spoke of them, the Old Testament prophets spoke of this millennial kingdom, and so all of that will come to a head. But notice that it will all be under the leadership of Jesus Christ. And then, ultimately, um, ultimately, um, you and I have this, this privilege. And this is the way Peter, or I'm sorry, this is the way Paul summed it up. He said that we are citizens of heaven, and we look forward to the time when Jesus will transform or change this humble body into conformity of the body of his, of his glory, by the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So here we see in the book of Daniel a reflection of what's going to take place in the future and how someday uh, the church will, will serve its purposes, Israel will serve its purposes, and then Jesus will reign forever and ever. And what a marvelous plan. You know, and to think that our sister Grace is with the Lord Jesus right now um, in heaven and um, filled with joy, no longer encumbered by the um, frailties of the flesh, but 
feasting her eyes on Jesus, welcomed into heaven as a servant, and probably waiting for us to join her in, in a few years or however long the Lord would have that. So here we have, in summation, a passage dealing with the body of Jesus Christ. I think it's fascinating that even in the midst of great suffering that these believers are going through, that Peter took the time to describe the purpose and the function of the church with respect to the point in time when the chief shepherd will appear because he is coming back. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, and we thank you for your greatness and for your power. And we thank you, Lord, that all of these things are in your loving control. And Lord, as responsible believers, God, I pray that you'd help inspire our hearts and to um, allow us to serve you in a way that just honors and glorifies you. And, and Lord, that we would be um, willing to serve you and you alone and that you would help us to examine our own hearts and to um, recognize that unless the Lord builds the city, we, they labor in vain who build it. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So with that, we're going to have a closing song, Kara. And... Um,